0: at and Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by at and data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey, Stan, so you've got a story for us today about a new dump of credentials. Yes. So
1: you guys might be familiar with HaveIBeenPwned.com. It's a website that's run by security researcher Troy Hunt. And uh, it's just a website that goes out there and he collects different, um, I guess, breaches and compromises of credentials. So it'll be like a username and password pairing of some sort. And then he just has a database that anybody can come in and search and figure out if their email appears in any one of the, or their name or something appears in any one of these breaches. Um, So while on that website, I was researching something and a new data source popped up that I wasn't familiar with. It was called collection number one. And uh, there's a little link, you can click on it and find out a little bit more about it. And here's what I found out. So this is very recent, so I guess sometime in January. Uh, Troy became aware, uh, actually of this year, so Troy became aware that there was something circulating on the underground uh, dark web uh, about like millions of records uh, being, uh, I guess, exchanged uh, that are new records that have never been uh, uploaded before. So uh, what he did is he downloaded it and analyzed it. And so we have um, uh, some statistics from this dump. So he had access to over, I think, 12,000 files, which represented like 87 gigs of this compromised records. Uh, when he then analyzed it and just looked at the email addresses versus the passwords, this is interesting, too. Compa- look, pay attention to the numbers. So 773 million uh, emails and only 21 million passwords <laughs> when you unique them. So if you do the division, I think I got this right. It's about like 35. Uh, I guess, users per password, if you divide it. So, that just shows how much password reuse there is out there, you know, based on how many accounts there are versus how many passwords, which is quite interesting by itself. And this is something interesting. Uh, Troy did mention there's also collections two through five, uh, which have not been loaded into the database yet or analyzed uh, that he has. So, uh, I guess
0: more to come on this. Wow. Uh, but it should not be surprising. Wherever he got this from, somebody actually took the time to actually crack all the passwords before they dumped them, right? Yes. So I mean that's that's not a cheap, that's an expensive, you know sort of uh, process, right? So somebody went through the the trouble of taking these, you know what, hundreds of millions of passwords and and actually cracking those passwords before dumping this stuff. So I wonder I just wonder how long that actually takes and what is that, you know? Yeah,
1: I suspect a lot of the passwords are probably going to be very short or yeah, simple, yeah. Or probably some kind of combination of like a simple word and a number, and there's so many different
0: permutations, but they're all so similar. When you have a huge dump like this, you're getting a pretty good sampling of what the world uses as passwords. You get those top you know, 20, 25, top 20, 50 most reused passwords. And I'm assuming these dumps like this are used to start making those calculations about, yes. you know, is, is Monkey still the f- number one used password? Or has it been surpassed by some other simple, you know, ABC123 kind of password? But Actually, the great thing about this website, which is one thing I didn't know, is he
1: has an API you can go and you can write an application on top of the data he has, you can actually query it. For example, one implementation might be before your users start using a password. You know, I, you've probably seen some websites where they tell you the complexity of your password, and yes. they give you like a little red, yellow, green. Uh, with this, you can actually pass the hash to the site and see has uh, the password been cracked before? Maybe don't let the user choose that password or uh, at least warn them that that's not a great password to use. Right. Maybe get like, a, what's redder than red? I don't know. <laughs> Some other color right. that lets you know, hey, absolutely do not use this password.
2: What's interesting about this now is that there's been an amount of password data disclosed that even if you're using different accounts, that you can actually look at this from the different, uh, the the other side of the perspective, and look at especially unique passwords, and associate the various accounts with password reuse that can be tracked back to a specific individual. Um, so there actually there's so much of this type of data um, that's out there now that they're able to start doing some really interesting analysis on that beyond just you know what passwords are most frequent. But also taking someone who might have some favorite passwords that they feel are sufficiently complex that they reuse those passwords on different accounts and then using the password commonality to actually link the accounts to a to a single individual.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, because we've seen that in the past where you know folks like to come up with maybe a scheme for creating those passwords. So if if this database shows you perhaps one or two iterations of a single person's password, you can come up with the scheme so that even if they change their password, you've got the next scheme that they're gonna change into, right? That's interesting.
1: That's a good thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. Light bulb. <laughs> I think with credential loss stories in general, we, we have to make sure uh, that we remember to always be changing our passwords on a a constant basis, maybe once a month, once every two months, whatever is more convenient for you. And really do try
0: to keep your passwords uh, different between websites. Make sure that you use complicated passwords, um, and if, if you don't think that you can create complicated passwords on your own, there are plenty of programs that are available today, uh, password managers, that will do it for you they'll manage the entire process for you. You know, storing the passwords in a safe way and then creating complicated passwords that you don't even have to remember yourself and just let the manager do it for you. I think it's probably one of the easiest ways for folks to really become much more secure about their passwords. Hey Mike, this is
1: uh, an interesting story I think you have for us about some new malware techniques or some new malware by an
2: advanced adversary group in the Middle East. There's a, a threat actor group uh, that's been called Dark Hydrus, um, and they're prim- primarily active in, in the Middle East uh, and using phishing campaigns and the like to target uh, government officials and other types of people in leadership positions uh, in that region. And primarily, they've been doing this with uh, spear phishing and domain squatting, uh, and using various open source tools and methods to you know, collect this data. They've been doing this for, for a couple of years now. Um, but here, this past uh, summer, uh, they started distributing uh, a trojan that was called Rogue Robin, and the trojan was PowerShell based, and it did you know the types of things uh, that you would expect a trojan to be able to do: screenshots, file retrieval, and you know, all those types of things. And it was delivered uh, via spear phishing attacks as you know an initial infection vector. Um, they kind of went dark uh, at the threat actor group um, here in Q four, and they just recently in the past couple of weeks, they've Uh, started to be active again, and there have been attacks attributed uh, with high probability to that threat actor group.
1: I'm curious if they took a break because they wanted to relax or because they had to retool.
2: Rogue Robin has ported itself away from PowerShell and is now uh, the new version that's being distributed these past couple of weeks is C-sharp-based. And that's something that's been seen elsewhere with other malware uh, pieces of malware uh, in recent weeks and months. Uh, where threat actor groups are moving away from PowerShell-based malware, and they're rewriting these programs in C Sharp uh, because people have really upped their game about securing their environments against rogue PowerShell uh, script execution. From there, the the new version of the malware continues to use DNS tunneling uh, for its primary command-and-control communication, just like the original version did. But the new binary version has implemented uh, a new feature called X mode, uh, which allows it to leverage the Google Drive API uh, for command and control. And this is, this is a new thing um, that this particular threat actor group is doing. So it's kind of an interesting new uh, attack uh, or command and control vector uh, that's leveraging and exploiting uh, legitimate services as command and control channels.
1: At least with one group of actors, DNS tunneling and PowerShell, that combination, seems to be on its way out a little bit. I feel like the last two years have been the years of DNS tunneling as a C2 mechanism by multiple different adversaries. In fact, also using PowerShell, uh, I don't know why, maybe all the bad guys went to the same security conference or something and learned <laughs> <laughs> about PowerShell and DNS malware, because literally every single thing that I've analyzed in like the last two years has been using some combination of PowerShell and DNS. Slightly
0: different, but uh, very similar. You went from the use of PowerShell to the use of, of C Sharp, which for me, Shows a a change that perhaps we need to start looking at. A lot of organizations today are concentrating efforts on how do I detect it, how do I know when it's being used maliciously on my network. So a lot of work has gone into that. And if we're starting to see a shift into this other uh, space, you know, clearly, you know, folks are going to have to start pivoting.
2: The penetration test team uh, that you know I'm a part of, you know, as we've been going out and doing penetration tests. Um, across, you know, our client base, you know, we've seen uh the defenses really shutting down a lot of our PowerShell based uh, exploitation frameworks and other tools. And so we've had to shift direction and, and use some of these tools that are, are, are not based on those platforms also. So if we're having to do that, certainly you know the malicious actors out there are doing so as well. Yeah. That's
0: great.
1: That's, that's a good observation. Yeah. Surprising they go back to C sharp. Uh, but perhaps it's a language that is easier is easy to use and
0: integrate with Windows API. The research is being done all the time on these threat actors and their techniques, and I think the best thing that we can do from a security community is to learn from those, put our defenses in place, and, and perhaps even learn to the point where you're actually trying to get ahead of the curve. The defenses that companies
1: and people employ are helping in a way because it's causing adversaries to
2: uh, change tactics. Hey, Manny. I understand that you're uh, looking to make some extra cash with bug bounties.
0: Yeah, I, I wish. <laughs> After we go over the story and see how much they're actually paying out, I, I, you know, change in, in careers might be, <laughs> in the might cards. Be, yeah, <laughs> might be in our cards. <laughs> so this story uh, popped up, and it, it's it's specific to a specific uh, uh, to a a specific company, Zerodium, they're obviously in the name, they go after zero days, right? So this company was established back in 2015, and they're based in Washington, D.C. And they are, in in essence, a a Mm -hmm. company that was established to receive bugs from researchers out there. And today, we see a lot of companies that take those bugs and then they they, in essence, sell them back to the companies who have those bugs. So they let them know, hey, you guys have a bug. You need to, you need to fix this, right? And there's, I'm sure there's, you know, the, the way that they get paid is the company themselves pays out like a bug bounty payout you know, to one of these companies that basically con- consolidates all the information and gets it out. Well, this company is a little bit different. So this company does not have normal customers like these other companies, they, they state on their, on their website that their customers are mainly government organizations in need of specific and tailored cybersecurity capabilities and or protective solutions to defend against zero-day attacks. Hmm. So you read that and you kind of think to yourself, okay, so first of all, they're selling to government organizations, right, government organizations. Don't know exactly what that means, but that to me sounds somewhat nefarious as to who you're actually selling these to. And then they try to sweeten this thing up by saying that they're selling them so that they can protect, right, protect against, you know, pr- protective solutions to defend. So they're saying, well, we're, we're selling it to you so that you can defend against these things, right? But I think we are all kind of smart enough to know that that's probably not exactly the case, right? And when we start talking about what this story is really about, which is how much they're actually paying researchers for these types of bugs. So back in 2016, for a Apple iOS jailbreak, zero click with persistence. So no no need to click and it's persistent, so it remains, after you do a reboot of the device, it remains in place, your jailbreak. Back in 2016, you would be paid $1 million. That's pretty good. For that that, uh, research, right? I mean, that's a pretty nice payout. Yes. Fast forward to this month in January of 2019, it has now doubled to $2 million. $2 Two million dollars they will pay for anybody that comes up with a an Apple iOS jailbreak, jailbreak with one click and persistence, still gets you a million and a half, right? Up from one million before, right? So they're even gonna you know break this down even further for you so that you're making you know in essence for these types of bugs you're you're getting paid out some pretty big big bucks here, so. Um, the question, I guess, that comes up when you start looking at this stuff is, is first of all, h- how, is, how is this company paying out so much money for bugs? You know, who are they actually selling to? You, you subscribe and you become part of like their channel, mm-hmm. but it's a very exclusive channel. So again, I say, who is it? Who, who is buying these things?
1: It's interesting, you know, they've thought through just by the description of the types of bugs that they're willing to pay for. They've obviously thought through exactly what they need. I mean, they're saying zero clicks, That's... one click, two click, <laughs> and uh, interaction without
0: interaction.
1: That's very interesting. Yes, uh, and,
0: and, and you're right. Clearly, there must be one of their customers is asking for a very, very specific thing. It sounds like a
1: marketplace, and they're like the market maker in a way. There are plenty of people out there who are willing to be like market makers um, in order to take vulnerabilities from people who have them and give it to the people who desire them. Uh, if there are companies like that out there that are aggregators of vulnerabilities and service this special clientele, that some other companies are going to have to work a little bit harder on their bug bounty programs to make sure that they're competitive.
2: I don't know that they're paying out that much, right? So yeah, you, you might be offering $2 million uh, for a unicorn, but that doesn't mean there's unicorns out there to be had. And so. It, you know, there may be, um, but I would, I would question really what the rate is of them finding those types of vulnerabilities. But there's a, a world of difference between, you know, a drive-by exploit that they load a web page, take no action, and it roots their device persistently versus an attack chain leveraging seven or eight or nine or more exploits that you have to put the phone, um, you know, onto a tether uh, and connect it to USB and then kind of work your way through an attack chain kind of more interactively uh, But I absolutely agree there certainly can be and probably are uh, those types of unicorns out there I mean, they got the, the price out there for a reason, but I think we're seeing less and less of those in certain areas
1: If you are a company that is writing software uh, You want to make sure that you have a good approach to security your software probably has bugs So you have to figure out what is your best chance of catching them? Is it going to be through bug bounty programs that you run yourself? Or are you going to partner with another
0: organization? I think the advantages of having a bug bounty program are immense. And even if you don't have the means to set it up yourself inside, the, inside your own company, there are many companies out there today that do bug bounty programs for you. Hey, Manny.
1: We have the internet weather f- uh, for uh, January 21st here, um, and this is the top 10 most pro- ports on the internet. So the way we compute this is we look at scanning activity, um, and this is just by volume, by port. So for every port, we profile and see how much there is. It's not, it doesn't mean that there's a lot of scanners. It doesn't indicate a botnet in particular, but it might indicate that maybe a few devices are really interested in something specific, maybe a specific new exploit. So for this week, we don't see really, we don't really see much movement, and and what's been going on is the same types of ports that we've seen in the past. Uh, maybe from week to week, they vary a little bit. So what I decided to do is just concentrate on one of them that we've examined in the past, um, which is port eighty-one TCP. I went ahead and I looked at all of the scanning activity that we see on this port in just the last thirty days, just to see what it looks like, and you could see. That you know there is, um, I think this is like between uh, at the very lowest probably 60 or 40 million uh, flows per hour, and at peaks you know you could see there's like 280. But it really varies day by day, even hour by hour. There's not like much consistency to it, but it's always happening at least at the rate of you know 60 million uh, flows per hour. Um, so, uh, this doesn't really tell us much, except that this activity is always going on. It comes in, it, comes, it goes away, there's peaks, maybe specific researchers start to look for it. So, I decided to look at our honeypot and to see what kind of activity do we see against this port. And so, um, I only concentrated on activity that looked like HTTP, uh, and just looking at that activity, I tried to analyze the different URIs that we were seeing in our honeypot, and then I used my own classification engine uh, to figure out what type of um, activity are these scanners trying to do, are these probes trying to do. Uh, So I have a few categories I came up with, Um, IoT, uh, what I mean by that is this appears to be. Uh, somebody trying to maybe run an exploit or profile a system looking for an IoT device, like maybe a DVR or a router or something like that, things that we've heard of before. And so when you look across the number of probes that we're seeing, uh, about 52% of everything we're seeing seemed to be targeted um, towards IoT. And then the other categories I had uh, was pretty easy. Uh, PHP, this one stood right out. Um, and it was a lot of different ways to try to profile um, a device to see, does it have PHP installed, does it have phpMyAdmin? I suspect people would be trying to like guess the username and password so they could upload files or download sensitive files and do some kind of exploitation. About 17% of the requests that we saw were the past few days, kind of fit into this category. Um, then there was just general profiling, like just getting the root of the page or getting the index page or getting like the favicon or something. Um, and so that's 27%, which is like I guess a quarter of everything that's happening, just to see what, what does the server respond with. Um, and then 4% for SQL. Uh, so that's like a general breakdown of uh, the types of requests that we see coming in on port 81 uh, based on you know, honeypot data that we have. The next part of the internet weather is uh, one of my favorites because it's the most sources probing. And this activity, this is similar, it's a breakdown of all the different ports, but this time by the number of devices scanning. And again, all of the ports here are very similar to ones we've talked uh, about in the past on the show. There's not really much movement. Um, And this week, I guess the fourth place is in my heart this week because I'm looking at port 5431, which is in the fourth row here. Um, and so, I'm going to look at that a little bit. We've looked at it in the past, um, and it's always looked like this. Um, so if you even look at some of the previous um, reports we did on it, there's not much movement. You see suddenly, you know, every maybe few days or every few weeks, like sudden spikes where a bunch of devices suddenly start um, scanning for the port, and then they stop all at the same time. Um, so I decided to say, see, you know, where are all these devices? Um, and uh, where they're located. Perhaps it gives us an indication of where the problem areas are uh, geographically. Um, you could see, I think here, you know, at certain peaks, you could get like 40,000 scanners per hour, um, and that probably represents the size of the botnet.
0: There's still a big mystery around what it actually is, what it's scanning for. But, you know, it was interesting to see Stan sort of give the global, the global view of where it's actually happening and see where the concentration of, of that scanning is actually taking
1: place. The one thing that's different from previous times we looked at it is how much more distributed um, uh, the, the devices seem to be all over the globe. So here I took almost 31,000 IP addresses that were doing the scanning and I graphed them here on this geographical plot. And you could see, I mean, it's really clear where the hotspots are. Um, I'm not sure it tells us anything yet. It's something that we still have to continue analyzing. But since we have seen this activity, this is letting me know that there's, for sure, in India, a lot of the whole, the entirety of India is pretty much lit up. Uh, So there's a lot of devices in India that are participating in the scanning. On port 5431, there's obviously a lot in South America and Europe and North Africa and even the United States here, and several hotspots there. So there's a lot yet to do to analyze this, but it's clear that this is like a global phenomenon. It's not really a specific regions. Uh, it's interesting that there's very little like in China, whereas you know previous botnets we've seen, there's many in that region. So I'm not sure, again, what this means 100%. Uh, but, uh, it is interesting and something that we'll have to continue monitoring to try to understand.
0: And what do we, what do we typically see on five four three one? Uh, I don't think we know for sure what's supposed
1: to be there. Okay. Uh, so it's one that's still uh, not fully analyzed, not fully well understood. But clearly a lot of scanning going on. Uh, clearly a lot, but it happens uh, yeah. very suddenly. Uh, and then goes away very right. suddenly, but it happens periodically. And that's why it keeps popping up um, on different weeks that we suddenly see it and then we don't see it anymore. And I think that's it for the internet
0: weather. The views expressed on at and track are those
2: of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.